Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Beers and Careers. This is Mark Agustinelli, your host. Um, and as always, the Davis Companies uh, is proud to present this next episode of Beers and Careers. www.daviscos.com. That's D-A-V-I-S-C-O-S.com. Davis is a leader in professional staffing uh, with clients choosing them to help them find their IT, engineering, and manufacturing teams. Um, today's guest is an awesome one, in my opinion, Mr. Jim Wall. Now, Jim is someone who, uh, this, this podcast is a little full circle for me. Um, Jim had a, uh, Jim and I had a small interaction when I was a senior in college. He also went to St. Michael's College and ended up becoming, um, the global HR leader at Deloitte. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, no, just kidding. Um, Jim and I had a small interaction my senior year that really prompted me to, uh, take the road less traveled and, he had an interesting career, um, which he never thought he was going to get into um, the world in which he did, being HR and and uh, never mind at an accounting consulting company. But professional services firm is probably a better way of saying it. But um, really awesome conversation. This man is a wealth of knowledge. and I think you'll really appreciate the combo. Check it out. Jim, thank you so much for coming on uh, Beers and Careers. Yeah. And um, for those of you who don't know, Jim Wall, uh, we connected through – our alma mater of St. Michael's College, and um, I met Jim through a personal friend, and Jim actually had a pretty profound effect on my life as a 22-year-old, even though it wasn't a big deal, wasn't a big conversation for Jim, but uh, on a quick side note, I, many people know, listen to the podcast, as I've talked about it before, I, I had the opportunity to live in Australia for a little while, and I got connected with Jim right at the end of my college career, and I remember calling him and being like, hey, Jim, you've got some great experience, like, I got this opportunity to go play lacrosse in Australia, but I've also like, I, I want to start my career. What do you think I should do? And you didn't bat an eye. You were like, you got to go. go. You got to go. So uh, go, the amount of ease that that uh, created at home with my, um, with my Christian parents was just a really good thing. And it, it, it helped me out. And uh, it was a small conversation for Jim, but it's so funny when I hear Jim while I just think back to that moment in my dorm room in Hudson. So glad, glad uh, you did it. Thank you so much. So, Jim, can you maybe give folks a um, the quick version of maybe uh, your career that you know, and, and kind of how I know we I'd love to hear about it from the from the Michigan State days all the way up to uh, I mean, you're still, you're still working. You're still working. Uh, well, I've been doing volunteer work. I retired from Deloitte uh, in 2012. Officially. Uh, yeah, yeah, officially. Stop drawing a paycheck. Let's put yes. It yeah. Okay. Fair. Um, but I began my career uh, actually in graduate school. Uh, I left St. Michael's and uh, immediately went to Michigan State for a master's degree in higher ed. I'd been an RA. I'd been involved in lots of student activities uh, as an undergraduate. And so that seemed like a logical choice back in 1974. <laughs> uh, and I, I uh, spent two years at uh, Michigan State getting my master's degree. I went down to a small uh, liberal arts college in Lexington, Kentucky, known as Transylvania University. There really is such a place. Mm. Bella Lugosi is not the president. Um, <laughs> about a thousand students. And uh, then went back after two years, um, got married, went back to Michigan State to work on my Ph.D. Uh, I was hooked on higher ed. I really enjoyed it. Ultimately spent 10 years there. Uh, did all of my coursework and my comprehensive exams for my uh, Ph.D. Became the director of university housing programs at Michigan State when I was 29. 
Uh, Michigan State at that time was the largest non-military housing operation in the world. Uh, had a great had a great run there and planned to stay there. Um, my wife came home one night and said uh, she was working for Hyatt Hotels. Hmm. She came home one night and said, you know, I've moved for you a couple times. I've got this tremendous opportunity to build a hotel in the Fan Pier in Boston uh, with Hyatt. That hotel, hotel never got built, by the way. Yeah, I was going to say. There, there's a courthouse there now. Yeah, okay. I was like, I don't think there's a high there. That, that had nothing to do with my story. <laughs> That's fine. So she said, how about you move for me? Uh, and I thought, hey, 85 colleges and universities in the greater Boston area, what the heck, I might as well do that. And so we, this was in September. You, If you're the dean of students at a Big Ten University, you don't move off the campus in September when things are getting started. So uh, she went to Boston and I uh, stayed at Michigan State until the following June, launched a job search, had a couple of opportunities, uh, good opportunities in higher education in greater Boston. So that was coming along. And uh, uh, honest to God's truth, I was going home to visit my grandfather that weekend, a weekend in March and picked up the Boston Globe help wanted section just to see what was going on in the marketplace. Obviously the help wanted section in the Boston Globe is extinct now, but, uh, and I saw an, an advertisement for a recruiting director at a firm that was then known as Touche Ross. It was one of the uh, big eight firms. And uh, I thought nothing ventured, nothing gained. Let me throw my hat in the ring and see what happens. One thing led to another, went in for an interview Got the interview, and 20-something years later, uh, I retired. Uh, while I was at uh, – the firm ultimately became known as Deloitte. As the, right. as the big eight firms collapsed from eight to four, uh, we – at the time, Tushross was the smallest of the big eight firms. Okay. Uh, we are now – Deloitte is now the largest uh, of the big four firms in the world. Um I was a recruiting manager for the Boston office, uh, liked that, enjoyed it, uh, had an opportunity to take on some additional HR responsibilities, uh, ultimately became the HR director for the Boston office, and then for New England, and then a merger happened uh, with Deloitte Haskins and Sells, and I took on a similar role for New England for, for Deloitte and Touche. Mm. Uh, from there, I became the director of HR for the United States, uh, and in 2004 for the Globe. Mm. So that's kind of how it. Uh, how not long? something I had foreseen. Or right. On. Right. Uh, you know, I I moved from my wife's career in 1984. Before that was a fashionable thing for a guy to do. Mm-hmm. People thought I was nuts. I probably was. Um, it worked out. All, it worked it, out. Yeah, it worked out. It, it worked, worked out well. Yeah. You know what's interesting about I, this is why I was excited to have you on the podcast, because um, the whole point of the podcast was to document kind of nonlinear career paths. And although yours from the outside, you, you climb the ladder, you never had it. You never thought you thought you were going to get into stay in higher ed when you moved to Boston and kind of rode the wave. But one thing I've never asked you before is what was it like um, and something I have zero experience with? What is it like being at a pretty big company that's going through consolidation as you're climbing the ranks and you've got a family at home and there's this whole unknown entity you're being formed with. Like, how is it navigating 
the waters, so to speak, of, of, of I mean, there, because it was the smallest of the institutions of the eight, you said, but I mean, they're still huge companies. Well, yeah, they, they, they each had about a billion dollars in revenue and then right. they each had about uh, 15,000 employees. Mm. Um, so, you know, that was, you know, that was in 1989. Um, you know, I was always kind of an, I was an anomaly in, in the firm because I had a master's, uh, a bachelor's in sociology, okay. St. Mike's, and a master's in higher ed from Michigan State. Uh, I didn't know a debit from a credit. Uh, my father was a CPA. Um, he went on to become the oldest practicing CPA in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Wow. In fact, he was a very good accountant. I suppose that might have had some Freudian effect on my decision. But but um, I always looked for opportunities to solve problems. I, I, I that's just who how I'm built uh, and and putting two different cultures together. In fact, those two t- cultures at the time, and it's been written, uh, were diametrically opposed to each other. Mm. Um, it was a merger of equals, both the same amount of revenue, both the same number of people. And we were coming together because the marketplace was changing. We had to, had to do it candidly. Mm. Uh, others had done it before us mm. and we wanted to create a third culture uh, we didn't want to it was not an acquisition it was okay. a, a, tr- a true merger true merger all right wow a merger of equals and we the easy part was getting the the financials to work together the hard part was creating the culture yeah. that probably took about five years mm. uh, and so I just found myself in the middle of a situation that I could either define or help define, or I could sit back and watch occur and take the results, whatever they might be. Right. And I, I decided to choose door number one. It's I've always been a believer that, you know, in particularly in work situations, but in life, uh, you're either part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Mm. You know, sitting on the sidelines doesn't get you anywhere. Right. Um, so I thought, well, what, what the hell? Let's let's see what we can do here. And right. professional services, you're in professional services. Yes. It's all about it's all about relationships. It's all about mm-hmm. connections of people. We all offer different services, but our competitive advantage is not so much the service we provide because we all have competitors. Yes. But who provides it, and what the culture is like, and what the commitment of the people are. Mm. And, you know, kind of soft and squishy stuff, uh, uh, perhaps until you look at the impact of that on profit and loss statements and profitability of businesses. And mm-hmm. so we we kind of became uh, trailblazers in building a, a new culture. Uh, it, it was at the same time invigorating and frustrating as hell. To yeah. Answer the question. Um there were plenty of people who were naysayers who thought, you know, this, who is this guy? Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't me who did this, by the way. I mean, this was a collective effort and uh, an exercise in partnership and collaboration, cooperation, compromise and hard work. Mm. Um, and it took us. I would say five years before that new third culture emerged that was not a trend you know it wasn't a transaction it was a process and yeah 
it took a long time. Uh, mm. And I was able to draw on my educational experience, but also my practical work experience and transfer a lot of the skills that I had developed through my education and my experience to this new role. Mm. Uh, and that was key. That was real key. Uh, I didn't know a debit from a credit. I didn't need to know a debit from a credit. There were plenty of people who knew that. Right. I knew, I knew how to, to get to critical people issues. I knew how to understand what made people and organizations tick. Mm. Uh, I, I knew a little bit about leadership. Uh, and so I took those skills that I had developed and I put them to practice in a very, in a different industry, in a different yeah. time yeah, and in a different place. And it sounds to me like there was no, like you referenced so many things that formed your experience and your skill set along the way. It doesn't sound like there was any like landmark moment along your development where you like gained a skill set that you monetized like, like maybe a CPA does, right? Where they get where they get that accreditation and that helps launch them. It seems like for you, it was really the myriad of the roles you had, and you. Well, I, I, I hired more than my fair share of CPAs. Yes. Uh, yeah. Fit. Okay. Well, Good point. Yeah. I um, and the credential is necessary. Right. But for a successful career in accounting, it's not sufficient. Mm. So you got to have it. Yeah. Uh, and there are lots of credentialing organizations now accounting was one of the first ones but yeah. you know you can get a, a credential in project management you can get right one in, in leadership you can get in one staff i got yeah. mine staffing okay so you get that <clears throat> that's necessary but yeah. that's not sufficient that's you know I, I would guess that if i asked you what made you successful in what you did it wouldn't be that credential correct it correct. would probably be around things like relationships mm -hmm. uh you know, promising, maybe under promising and over delivering, deli you yes. know, yes. you were you are viewed by your clients as a solution to their problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and as a result, they get something and you get something. Um, so, uh, you know, as I re kind of reflect on my career, it, it was really all about relationships. I was not initially or primarily an external client facing person. I my clients were the employees and the partners of Deloitte. That's who I went to work for. Yeah. Now, over time, as we kind of got our brand creds in the HR space and in the talent space, our clients would say, gee, can you come do that for us? Yeah. And so I, I did a fair amount of interface with client service teams to our external clients. But that was not my primary role. Right. My role was an internal role. And it, I had to understand, how does this business make money? Mm-hmm. Uh, let make sure that I'm aware of the you know the financial statements and I know what's coming in and what's going out. Mm -hmm. I know who's you know who who does what to who. How do you get things done in this organization? Like no fooling. How does stuff happen? Right. And and what causes people to derail? And what can we do to to prevent that? Uh, and make sure that I have a godfather and a godmother and somebody watching my back, just like I'm watching somebody else's back. Right. Then I become valuable because I'm part of the solution, mm. not part of the problem. If it's like, oh, geez, here's another HR guy. What do I need this for? Right. That, you know, right. That's that, that, you know, and 
It's just interesting you hear them. You you use the word customer. Those were my customers. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I, it, interestingly enough, I, in all my educational credentials, bachelor's, master's, PhD, I do not have a single course in human resource management. Not one. Wow. People hear that and they kind of go, Ugh. I don't, I'm not credentialed. <laughs> in, I'm not credentialed in human resources. I have no credentials from the Society for Human Resource Management. <laughs> so maybe I'm an anomaly. I don't know, but, but I, I think I'd be a pretty big one and I don't think I'm that big of a guy. I think, I, you know, I, I think that, you know, take a page out of the book. It's sort of like, you know, be part of that. Be part of that solution. You know, when I often tell, used to tell people when they were applying for jobs, the, the, the employer is not interested in your career initially anyway. They're posting a job because they got a problem. Yes. And, and they're hiring you to fix the problem. They're not hiring you to build your career. Right. Sorry, right. sorry to you know, burst your bubble, but they aren't. Right. You know, they're in deep doo-doo and they need somebody to do something. And you're the guy that's going to gal that's going to do that. Mm-hmm. So you, you need to present yourself as the solution to their problem. A hundred percent. We we oftentimes uh, in our job, because I'm in the staffing business, you know, we get sent the uh, boilerplate job description. Right. And we, get, and we get on the phone with the manager and we're like, no offense, but I don't care about this. What is right. the mission of this person? Like, what are they doing for you and how are you judging if they're successful? And which is a really nicer way of saying What's your problem? Right. Yeah. What's your and, and as you said, and as you said, what does success look like? Yeah. And then I mean, what's I the need time to be frame? able to touch it and feel it and see it. What does right. what does a win? Right. Look like you know. Mm-hmm. Now in football, we know what you know. Brady, we know what a win looks like. Correct. Right? Correct. That's what it looks like. Okay. Mm-hmm. All and, the other stuff on the side doesn't matter. At the end of the day, did you win the game or not? Right. And I think I think in business because sports uh, are. The, tend to be the favorite analogy around this place, but uh, sports, it's so black and white and helpful. You know, you know what a win is. And, and for us, a huge sign of a customer not to work with is one that can't answer those questions because there's other issues that are going on. You got to yeah. kind of turn away from that. It's a red flag. I, yeah. A huge red flag. Do you, do you, um, you know, you said uh, something that really resonated. Our competitors do very much the same thing. And, and a lot of our competitive advantage is the squishy stuff. As you as you culture. culture, it's culture and the commitment of our people and how we inspire our people. And, and then obviously the job in which we perform and, and to the satisfaction of our client. But do you think you're. Do you think the fact that you were in the professional services industry had something to do with the fact you stayed at the same company for as long as you did? And, and what I mean by that is often I, I was challenged a couple of years ago. I got, you know, probably six or seven years into this business. I started thinking to myself man, my friends are changing jobs and they're doing these different things. And they were in the product business though, right? So the product and features was a different thing. And and I and I had uh, someone who was a client at the time, but became a mentor was like, Mark, as long as you're gaining more skills, I mean, you go to someone else, it's you're still dealing with people problems and it's nothing really has changed. And um, so I think it's having an effect on the longevity of where I stay and do my work to a degree because the competitive advantages are are less technology based, if you will, and more cultural and, and yeah. cultural based. Yeah, we, we are, it's it's got a bunch of different shoots off that question. Um, I acknowledge that it is unusual in in today's world for someone to be at a place either for ten, yeah, or thirty years, yeah. uh, 
but that just doesn't happen anymore. No. For lots of reasons. The marketplace, the way, the, the rate of change. Yes. Uh, the M&A market. Yeah. 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 Um, I, I, but, and, and as a practical matter, um, interestingly enough, one of the, one of the problems we were trying to solve was the high rate of turnover at our firm. Mm. Back when I started in 1984, <laughs> um, the turnover rate of accountants in the big eight was 30, 40 percent. So and Touche was no exception to that. Yeah. So that in three, four, five years, the intellectual capital of the enterprise totally, totally turned over. Yeah. And if you believe that in profession, that professional services, with what you sell is skill, capability, commitment. When that walks out the door, okay, and there have been lots of studies on this. We did them, some of them, some of the big consulting firms up before our time did them. Uh, in professional services, when a person leaves the organization, it costs the organization roughly three times their salary at point of exit. Wow. So if you have a $100,000 guy, gal, who walks out the door, about three hundred grand walks out with them. That's in terms of profitability. That's in terms of relationships, proprietary knowledge, replacement costs, which you know a thing or two about. Correct. And so one of the things that we did was, and I remember doing this at a party meeting, saying, well, our, our turnover rate is, let's just call it 30. And we want to get it down to let's call, where we control it rather than it controls us. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, to an ideal of 10, 10%, yeah. 12%. Yeah. Here's what that would say. Here's what that would drop to the bottom line. If we save that much money mm. now, keep in mind that Deloitte is a partnership. So there are partners and there are employees. Mm -hmm. Partners only get paid what's left after all of the employees and the expenses. Have yes. Been paid, okay? Yes. So all of a sudden I start to get their attention. And I say, well, if we just dropped the percent, the turnover rate by one percentage point, just one. Right. Not 20, just one. Okay. In 12 months. And we calculated that the average salary and the cost of turnover, not at three times salary. Let's call it one and a half. Let's give it a bogey. Yeah. What would that put in the pocket of every partner? And it was something like 30 grand. Yeah, you spoke the language of your customer. And it was like all of a sudden the naysayers were like, mm -hmm, let me pay a little. You know. and, and accountants are trained to doubt. So whenever you give, yes. they're professional yeah. skeptics. Yeah, yeah. right. To, to, to doubt. Okay? Right. So I knew the minute I did that, they were going to tear me apart. They were going to say, okay, well, let's look at the numbers. And the numbers were the numbers. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Now, the people had already left. Okay? Right. They were gone. Right. You were placing them somewhere else. Okay? Yes. Yes. So the number was real mm. and it started to cascade. And then one thing led to another and we dropped the turnover rate over five years to 10 percent. What was what was the do you have things you could share with us that you keyed in on to change that turnover rate? 
Sure. We, 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 we initially, we took a look at why do people leave the organization? You know, yeah. you get exit surveys, all that stuff. Yeah. Um, and it turned out that the three reasons, there were three big ones, why people left turned on their head were the very same reasons why they stayed. So wow. there were variables that we could have some level of control over. Yeah. If it was negative, if one of the terms was negative, they, you know, that, that was not good. Two were negative, by, you know, pretty close to bye-bye. Three, they're out of here. Yeah. But if we really wanted to keep them, what would we do? And the first thing was the na people, the, the work had to be valuable to the individual. They had to believe they were making some sort of a contribution. Mm -hmm. whether it was the capital, something as lofty as capital markets or the survivability mm -hmm. of a particular client, didn't matter. They had to be able to articulate, what what am I doing and why does this matter? Yes. Otherwise, I'm just kind of shoveling sand against the tide. Yeah. I can do that anywhere. Right. The second is was, who am I doing it with? Mm. Okay. Do I work with people who I enjoy, frankly? Yes. Uh, who I'm, I can learn from, mm -hmm. uh, who can learn from me, um, who respect me. You know, you often heard yeah. you, people don't resign from companies, they resign from supervisors. Right, right. That's all wrapped up in that second one. The third one is, does it matter to Deloitte that I'm here? Not does it matter to me, because I get a paycheck. Mm. Yeah. Do I get a sense that this firm actually cares that I'm here? Mm. If not... I get a call from a guy like you, <coughs> I'm gone. See you later. Yeah. Interesting. And, and we built on that when we, when we uncovered a very serious problem in 1992. We had a hundred in 1992. Just, just stay with me for a second here. Yeah. <clears throat> we had been recruiting 50% women off college campuses, guys like me, had yeah. been recruiting 50% women off colleges campuses for 15 years, 18 years, okay? The average length of time that it takes to get from point of entry, so if a kid graduates from Bentley, let's just say, okay, yeah. or UMass, uh, in 11 years, they should be a candidate for partner, 11, okay? And that number hasn't changed a whole lot. Now, you know, over time, yeah. you know, you'll hire people in with experience, so that number's smaller. But, but the point is, a college graduate with a degree in accounting from pick your favorite Boston school, yeah, enters Deloitte, and by 11 years out, they should be, at least be a candidate for a partner, an owner of the business, yeah, the big leagues, the gold ring, yeah, okay? big bucks, okay. In, in, in 1992, we had been recruiting 50% women for 15 years. So we, so I, the, that was the year I started. I took a look at the class of candidates who were nominated for partner. There were, were 100 candidates. Guess how many were women? Less than 10%. Seven. Wow. One, two, three, four. You could count them on wow. two hands. Seven women. 
So the first question is, where the hell did they all go? Yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah what's going on there? What happened? Yeah. Okay. I mean, we get a, a we got a going. We don't have a, a growth strategy. We have a going out of business strategy. Yeah. <laughs> we, have a, we have a talent hemorrhage. Yes. Where do these people go? So we set out to find out the answer to that question, and they didn't. They didn't leave to become mothers. That was yeah. the big. The guys all thought, ah, oh, shit. They, you know, they go and right. They just kind of cast it. They just kind of go away. Right. Yeah. Uh, they went to places where they felt like their presence made a difference. They valued the work, and they thought that it mattered to the, their employer that they were there. And we clearly we're, were not we're not doing that. And so that's where that's where we focused. Uh, what became it started as an initiative. It became a fundamental change in the way we do business. Mm. It was called the Women's Initiative, and it started with, with a partner in Boston. Interesting. And it went worldwide. Right. Uh, That's top down. You just drive that initiative. Our, our chief executive officer, uh, we were the first firm to have a CEO that was a woman. Yeah. We were the first to have a chairman that was a woman. Mm. We were the first to have uh, women on the top, leading the client, the client service teams on the top 10 clients in the world. Mm. So. It, it, and it didn't happen overnight. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. Wow. In fact, it's still, and in fact, we've got a big issue now, now, with our women, as do, as do all employers, particularly with, with women in professions, who have been forced to work back at home. Yes. And homeschool children, they, they, the burden for that still falls more, more proportionately yes. to women than it does to men. Yes, okay. and the pandemic just... And it's taken over a million women in the United States out of the workforce. Wow. In one year. Wow. A million women. Wow. And it's like, what? That can't be the answer. Yes. Right? So, wow. and, it, and I don't think it's any one company. Yeah. That, that certainly, you can put in benefits. You can put in leave policies. You can put in remote work. You can do, and we did all that stuff. We did yeah. That 20, we did that 20, 25 years ago. Yes. But but it's got to be something more fundamental than that, and it's got to be embraced by. This is going to sound hokey, but it's got to be embraced by society. Uh, mm. The government has got to be involved in legislating change. Yes. If, if the U.S. economy certainly uh, is going to return, uh, if you look at other economies around the world. Uh, you will find that they have not suffered the same level of loss of women professionals as the United States has over the last 12 months. Interesting. You ask yourself, why is that? I was going to say, and it sounds like you've looked into it. It sounds like it's mostly policy focused, but it's I, I also would say, I would say policy has a lot to do with it. I mean, certainly if you look, for example, if you look at the Scandinavian countries. Right. I mean, they have a fundamentally different yeah, structure, but right. but but we we do business in all of those countries. Right. So you have so you so you live to those you live in that world in that culture. Absolutely. I mean, yeah. we have over we have close to four hundred thousand employees around the world now. Right. So and and our practices are very much affected by the the rules, the regulations, the norms of the countries in which we do business, mm. which vary. Mm. So, you know, one size fits all is is not the name of the game. It just doesn't work. Yeah, that's that's, uh, you know, in my little world I live in, because I because most of we. 
we support global customers and we do have employees globally, but nowhere at the scale you do. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, was it hard to manage like in a time like this, right? And not to get into our political climate, but we know the world doesn't think as highly of America as it maybe did previously. Just in a snapshot of the last, let's just call it 10 years. Did you, do you, because I know you're still in touch with folks there, is there issues of like your employees on the ground in Scandinavia being like, what is going on over there? Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Oh, and sure. is that I'm internal not, issues? I, I'm not involved with those employees any longer. Right, uh, right. But, um, but I was. Yeah. For, uh, for eight years, I was, you know, I spent most of my life at Kennedy Airport flying to someplace outside the United States. Mm. Um, and by the way, one of the things I would say to people who are listening, who are thinking about careers and how they move and navigate career channels, this is very much of a global world. The, 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 yeah. You know, the, the, the nationalistic, uh, uh, you know, populist politics that are existing in lots of countries right lots now. Lots of countries, yes. It's, it's uh, not just the United States. Right. Okay. Right. <clears throat> Will ultimately fade. Yeah. Uh, and it will be very important for your listeners to understand how the global economy works, mm. how economies in different countries with different cultures work. Yeah. And to be more than casually interested in that. Um, one of the things I used to say is, that, you know, people in the United States will read <clears throat> the Wall Street Journal. Yeah. But very few of them will read the Financial Times. I'm not plugging either either publication. Yes. Uh, very few, very lots of people in the United States back when I was around would would read Business Week, but they wouldn't read The Economist. Yes. Uh, so I would challenge people to kind of think beyond what's right in front of you. There's nothing that you touch or eat or read that doesn't have a global dimension to it. Yeah. Footprint. Uh, you, it used to be that our client, some of our clients would say, I don't care what's going on in Timbuktu or Indonesia. You know, I operate a business in Chelsea. Right. And, and, you know, and then you'd say, well, OK, OK, let's take a look at your business. Right. Right. Where, where are your raw materials coming from? Right. Where are your employees coming from? Uh, you know, and you start to ask a few questions and people would be like, Ooh, you know, uh, the same <clears throat> the same is true with your employees. You know, they're experiencing this world we live in from their vantage point. Yeah, their worldview. Uh, and their worldview is not only of their own country, but of our country and the globe is very much shaped by news events, by their own experiences. And it very much drives decisions that they make and choices that they have. Uh <laughs> And, you know, the nationalistic and populistic movement discounts that, but that is very much operative. You know. Do you, did you always think in this way or did, did your, the amount of travel you did, did that have a larger impact on you? Oh, it, sure. You oh, like sure. when you're in it, because for me, like, you know, I joke, I, I referenced the Australia thing at the beginning, like literally traveling there and living there, you know, Italy, other places, like once you're on the ground and you're seeing people and you're like, these people put their shoes on one at a time, too. It's like we're all the same. Right. And it kind of changed for me, at least. 
had, was a significant, significantly changed the way I looked at the world. Yeah, sure. I, I mean, I, yes, uh, travel certainly does that. That's not an option right now. Exactly. Uh, and it probably won't be for quite some time. People forget that, you know, what the United States, we're all talking about the vaccinations and how things are going in the United States or not going as, right. the, case, as the case might be. Right. This is a pandemic. This is the world. Right. And until the last person in the world gets vaccinated, not the United States, not Boston, right. not Opus, the, the world, until that person gets vaccinated, this pandemic is alive. Yeah. So. You want anything more anything more fundamental than a global view? There, there you have yes, it. Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, so, so I think, yeah, my 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 view broadened with my experiences. Sure. Mm. Uh, I I worked in a um, at a university that had a a, a heavy global student population. Mm. Uh, in fact. I happened to have been in the student union the night that the Shah of Iran fell, and I got held hostage by Iranian students for two days. That was fun. But I got a chance to listen to these kids and say, well, what's the gripe? Yeah. You know, right. what's, what's the gripe? Yeah. And I learned a lot. Mm. Uh, and I had to, you know, interact with students from 50, 60 countries. And then I went to Deloitte. And yeah, initially I was in Boston and I wasn't dealing with, you know, but then I was dealing with exchange students, people who are coming and going. And, um, you know, I, Boston, New York, I, I spent a lot of time in New York where our global cities, they're not, yes. you know, yes. much, you know, with, with a fair amount of resistance of the, of the population initially. But I mean, you know, walk down any street in Boston or New York and listen to how many languages you hear. And I think that tells you True. What, what's True. going on. Um, I have an international family. Both of our children were adopted from Korea when they were infants. Mm-hmm. Uh, never gave it a second thought. Yeah. Um, that opened up a whole nother world. So, so, and then, but, but you're right. Being, a, I mean, reading about Australia is different Think than up. being in Australia. And having a big can of Foster's in your hand. Exactly. Which they don't even drink. Yeah. I don't understand what the hell the guy across the table is saying to you. It's it's so He's true. He's speaking English. Uh, and I think I like. And I started the uh, the podcast saying like you kind of preempted. I think you were really the final check mark that was like, all right, I'm going. This guy who I've never met before and holds a uh, went to the same college as me, but holds a very uh, an impressive job. Right, is telling me to travel. And I feel like when I've talked to people, recent college grads or people that are graduating high school and not thinking about college, like, what should I do? It's like, get out of here. Leave wherever you are from. Get out of your comfort zone. Just get out because you're going to – and if you, if you come back, great. And because you're going to come back with a newfound appreciation for what you have. But you're also going to have an awareness of what else is out there. And I think it's a uh, – it's – it's one of those things where, you know, I, I would never want it to be a mandatory thing, but it'd be uh, like other countries do a really good job. In Australia, for example, there's a national law where you cannot get fired for taking right. taking four weeks of vacation together. Right. You get mandatory four weeks of vacation and you can use all four weeks in a row. So right. kids, and I say kids, but people in their younger days, in their early 20s, they travel to countries for long periods of time. And I think it has a 
they have a different appreciation for what they have and for how the rest of the world works, which is pretty well, cool. and, and you know, and I'm sure I told you this when we had that conversation way back when. One of my professors at St. Mike's said, you can take a book off the shelf anytime. You can't take an experience off the shelf. Right. You right. have it once and you yes. learn from it and it's gone. So true. So grab it when you got it. If you true. have the opportunity, grab it. And mm. um, I think that today people are are limited in many respects by external forces that tell them they ought to, you know, not do that. It, it, it was um, we talked when you mentioned the classifieds in the Boston Globe, right? Like, I I think one of the unfortunate nature of of the way we digest information and get information is you get it through specific channels yeah. that you almost habitualize, right? I go to my phone, I open up Twitter, or however I get my news. I get the Wall Street Journal, which is now digital, right? But like, you don't have the I'm in the airport. You know, let me just pick this up and read. You know, you were planning on finding a new job that day. And I think that spontaneity, um, you almost have to purposely seek it out. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and you know, te- the, the impact of technology, I mean, we could go on yeah. for another couple of days on that. But, right. but it, 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 you know, channels of information are very narrow. Yes. Um, I think that's a good way of saying what I was trying to say. Precisely a time when we need to be very broad in our thinking. Right. And so if you're stuck or you get sucked into a couple of narrow channels, how do you get out? And and how do you see? I mean, I can remember my my father saying to me, my mother saying to me, just because it's in the newspaper doesn't mean it's true. Yes. Years ago. Right. Okay. And well, just because it's on this screen here doesn't mean it's true. And I think. Unfortunately, people have a tendency in these narrow channels, whatever they might be, yeah, to to observe what they see as truth, mm-hmm. and 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 kind of have gotten intellectually lazy to be candid. Well, I think it really limits. It's funny. I, it, I didn't know this uh, about you, but learning more about you and your career, your your secret superpower was problem solving. It certainly sounds like like that was one of them. Yeah. You can't be a problem solver with narrow channels of information, like oh, yeah. like virtually impossible. So there's, right. there's people trying to solve problems right now, and they're only looking at it pretty myopically or with, you know, half a half a deck of cards as opposed to the full one. So I think it's an interesting dynamic that of how it relates to what made you successful. Well, and I think to, to take it back to the to topic of careers, <clears throat> I, I think that. People, people who have a good chunk of their career still in front of them, yeah, have almost unlimited opportunity mm. in the state of the world today. Right. Uh, I, I mean, almost unlimited. Just to think of the fact that, you know, fifty percent of the jobs that are going to exist in ten years don't exist now. Yeah. I mean, just get your head wrapped around that. Right. I mean, look, right. To, to look at all of these startup companies that are popping up all over the place. Who's doing all of that? Mm. And could you do some of that? Yes. Uh, Or how companies are morphing from heavy manufacturing to information technology. How do they do that? Right. Um, You know, or the government is, you know, is morphing into something other than what it was. God help us all. (laughs) Uh, 
uh, you know, I mean, that's right. It's right. You know, I mean, I, I think I think if if you kind of approach this as a kid in the candy store, yeah, and hey, man, I can you throw something at me, I'll figure it out, and we'll 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 go we'll go we'll, have some fun here. We'll keep ripping. As opposed to here's the ten reasons I can't do that. Right. right. Well, because all these external forces are yeah, holding you that's, back. That's but, just a lot of bunk. That's yeah, bunk. it's the victim mentality that puts you puts you behind the eight ball. Do you? Yeah. Well, you know, that I'm really interested in now, not to switch gears totally, but one thing I'd really appreciate, and I think maybe not the um, job seeker, but I think there's a healthy population of the podcast listeners that are gainfully employed, and, I, and I'm starting to find out in leadership roles. Yeah. Listening to the podcast. What, you said you went remote and put those policies in years ago at Deloitte. Now we are in, I think you described it before to me as a 2D world. Versus we used to live in the 3D world. Yeah. How how are the professional service firms, at least, and or the or the I think cultures are relevant, uh, are important no matter what the industry is, but certainly in our professional services world they are. How are we going to maintain and and build upon cultures when we're when we're living this way? Like, do you have do do you have ideas and strategies on how to keep it keep it positive and uh, in a building momentum? If you will. Well, I sure I get my own thoughts. I, yeah. I don't think that problem has been solved, Mark. Right. Um, it's new. It's, a, it's kind of all, a new problem. Yeah, I think we're all struggling with that. Um, I think companies are struggling with it. I think organizations are struggling with it. Individuals, families. Yes. Uh, you know, my son's in Philadelphia. I haven't seen him in over a year. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's not that's no fun. Yeah. Um, you know, we do this, <clears throat> we do this thing, uh, but I, I think it, it's, it, it, it gets back to a lot of fundamentals of being a, uh, a good person. Mm. Uh, you know, when everybody else is finding fault, find kindness. Because mm. uh, people are really, uh, my sense is that people are anxious. Uh, either because of the current circumstances or unknown future circumstances or they're constrained and, you know, so let's just talk about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. How do we deal with that? Right. Um, I mean, and, and I think if you, if you, one of, one of my mentors said, God gave you two ears and one mouth for a reason. Mm -hmm. If you listen Yes. You will always learn more than if you speak. Mm -hmm. um, and so asking good questions and listening carefully in a world where that's kind of in short supply right now, mm -hmm. I think helps form that, will form that culture. We right. had, we had, uh, and a number of other people, along with us, uh, learned a terrible lesson on September 11th of 2001. Mm -hmm. um, and we uh, survived that. Uh, we lost one of our employees, uh, but many of our clients perished. Mm -hmm. uh, and their organizations were dramatically affected. And some of what we learned out of that experience, it, when we were in the middle of it, we weren't thinking about it. Yeah. We were yeah. thinking about staying alive. Yeah. You know, sort of like 
now. Yeah, right. Not as acute. Yes. It was like, wow, you know. Um, but as we reflected on that, well, how did we get through that? We, we were bombed out of our offices for a year. Mm-hmm. Um, the reason that we were uh, downtown in Manhattan was because all of our clients were in those two towers. Yeah. We were the only big four firm that was in downtown. And the oh. only reason we were there is because all of our clients were across the street. Wow. And a lot of them didn't make it up. You're right. And so when you're faced with that and the benefit of 20 years experience, which is hard to believe, you you can reflect on that in a different way than when the incident is upon you. Mm-hmm. Right. And a couple things were are really clear. Number one, the most important thing to us was taking care of our people and our clients. Yeah. Not our P&O. Yeah. Okay. We had to, you know, make sure that we knew where everybody was and to the extent that anybody had problems, we were helping them solve those problems. We had to do the same thing for our clients. Mm -hmm. Um, We had to rebuild our business. As a result of rebuilding our business, we learned some things about help other people rebuild their businesses. Mm -hmm. So and so and so and so. Okay. Um, You know, one one of the... um, inevitable results of that, given the circumstance we find ourselves in now, we were literally bombed out of our offices, 5,000 people out for a year. Wow. So we, in, nine, in well, in 2001, and, and also in 1993, right, right. Enough, right. we had to work remotely. Hmm. We didn't have a choice. Right. So, now, and we didn't have the benefit of the technology that we have. Yeah, very different world. So we had to figure out how to do that. And we did. So that when this pandemic hit, guess what? We weren't looking for a fight. Right. But but we were more conditioned and able to deal with this than a lot of organizations because of what we had been through. Yeah, you and perhaps makes you resilient. You know, but I, I think at the end of the day it's connectivity. <clears throat> I think one of the one of the pro- problems since we've all been in our bunkers, is we kind of get burrow in. Yeah. Uh, we, it's not that we're not thinking about other people, because I think, I think it, basically people do that. Yes. But we're not reaching out. Yes. Hey, Proactively, yeah. How are you? Yeah. How, how you doing? Mm-hmm. You know, just wanted you to know I was thinking about you. Right. That's all. Right. You know, I don't want anything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, anything. right. You know, I'm not looking for a, you know, a, a, you know, a file. I'm not looking for a phone number. I just wanted you to know I was thinking about you. How many people do that? No, they but don't. But they if you, you know, and organizations are nothing more than collections of individuals. Right. If That's you right. can somehow make that happen, mm-hmm. or or lead by example. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, and I and I believe there's tremendous pressure on organizational leaders to yes. do this. Yes. Tremendous pressure. Uh, and they're human just like everybody else. Right. Um, but they'll all, my experience is people will act in their character. Mm-hmm. And, and perhaps no more so when the chips are down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, I, I think that back to your question, how do we deal with this two-dimensional world? <clears throat> for the time being, hopefully, um, is to think about things that maybe we used to do that we no longer do mm. for 
whatever reason we no longer do them. Yes. And to see if that make make a difference if you started doing them again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think just having a podcast with you know beers and careers and talking about it is is a step in the right direction. Right. You right. Know, I mean, most people say oh, I'll do it that later. So they focus it, on the task with them. You know? Well, and I think it, it's exacerbated um, when you're young. Yes. Like, like, I, like yes. I remember, like when my mom and dad used to call me in college, being like, "What are we doing here? Like, I, like, like nothing's changed, mom." And now, I think having children of my own, and yeah. you go through the steps of life, you realize how important it is to call your mom. And and I use the call your mom as the metaphor for people in your life just to reach out, right? Yeah. But I, but it's the truth, and uh, some of it's just time and a place like I literally was thinking about that it's funny you brought that up I was literally thinking about the other day because now it's part of my nature to be like my parents are down in Hilton Head bunkering um it's easy to call them and FaceTime them it's like part of my memory I lived in Australia for 18 months they visited for three weeks we had a grand time I probably talked to them the technology was different but I probably talked to them three times in 18 months yeah it just wasn't it just I was a 22-year-old male, yeah. like just not a smart person <laughs> and very self-involved. So I think yeah. you're right. We really got to uh, we got to help each other out. Develop. You no, know, and I, I I think it also uh, uh, it also requires uh, actively thinking about being more patient mm. with yourself, uh, with each other, with the circumstances. Um, we we aren't doing so good on the patience thing. No. Um, no. You know, you just look at the newspapers today. You know, in Massachusetts or any 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 anywhere, in the impatience around uh, the pace with which these vaccines are being delivered. Uh, it's like you're getting a vaccine within a year. Yeah, and I and I, I and I understand that impatience. I, you know. We're getting to the point, we're going to be close to 500,000 people dead in the United States, that the six, the rule of six degrees of separation are going to play if they haven't already played. You're going to right. know somebody. Yes. Yes. You're going to know somebody who knows somebody who died from this thing. Right. So I understand why people want to get vaccinated quickly. Yes. Okay. But we're talking about vaccinating a population of 330 million people. Right. And that's just plain old going to take time. And yeah. the logistics around that are not simple. No. Uh, and so you only need to, without going into that one in great detail, but you only need to use that as an example of you've got to calm down here. Yeah. And give yourself a break and give these people who are working to help you a break, mm. be careful, be cautious, be, be protected, do all those things, but dial it down. Yes. Down. Yes. And would you, do you think that if you were going to give, would that be at the top of your list for like a recent college grad or someone figuring out their way in the career? Like, like I think I've never heard the advice of think of it as a kid in a candy store, the global economy. Like I, like to me, that was I, that was an immediate note I took down because it's such a way of looking at it the opposite way, right? All we hear about is automations encroaching, um, jobs are going away, we're losing jobs. But to your point, most of the jobs of the future haven't been created yet, and you get to you get a front row seat in that. Yeah. The last person, the last uh, guest I had on the podcast, their favorite quote was. Um, 
uh, oh, God, I just wrote it down. And I, oh, um, it's basically like, don't fear the future because you can create it. Oh, yeah. Somebody, yeah. To, that, somebody to that effect. I'm butchering yeah, no, no, no. on a Thursday after. I was just going to say, yeah. one of those people that you were talking about could be, could create one of those jobs that hasn't existed yet. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that, like, I think that for me is like, if you're going to take anything from the podcast as someone looking for a role or a career, that's an awesome one. But I also think you gave a lot of wise wisdom for how to lead people because it's an, you got it. You had a vantage point at the macro. I I was a, uh, a a student of Colin Powell. I, I, I I spent some time with him. I was fortunate to be able to spend you know, a couple hours on a couple of different occasions with him and listen to him. And one of the, he had a lot of famous quotes. Yes. You should look him up. No, I actually did a report on him in college, oddly enough. One of the things that, one of the ones that really stuck with me, optimism is a force multiplier. Ah. Optimism is a force multiplier. Yeah. And... I thought, wow, you know, you, you know, it's, I suppose it's a modern day version of the glass is half empty or the glass is half full. Who cares? Yeah. This is, a, this is a son of immigrants from Jamaica who moved to the Bronx. Right. Okay. He didn't have two dimes to rub together. Mm-hmm. And look what he did. Yes. Incredible. Look what he did. Incredible. And like so many people have so much going for them and they're, and they're not optimistic. Right. It's, yeah. Optimism is a force multiplier. Is that your favorite quote? That's one of them. Okay. All right. Because I did. Uh, it's hard I, for me to isolate one, you know. I, I, but but. I'm into. Yeah. I'm with you on that. I'm into quotes, uh, and I Powell, did. Powellisms are definitely. Up there. You know. Now I mean, you you go from that extreme to you're either part of the solution or part of the problem. Most people don't know uh, that that the person that spoke those words was Eldridge Cleaver, who was. Uh, the leader of the Black Panthers in 1970. Wow. So, <laughs> yeah. So who says it matters? <laughs> Jim, in my haste to get the conversation going, I skipped uh, a part of the podcast that we kind of have important, which is a core rapid fire question. So do you mind if I conclude our conversation? Sure, yeah. No, go right ahead. Yeah, I'm going right. to skip. Fire away. I'm going to skip the favorite quote one, unless you got another one teed up that you want to share with me. I don't know. All right, cool. I mean, um, I could gin up 10, but I don't, you know, no. <laughs> what is, uh, what is your favorite drink? I know you got a glass of wine with you. I got a glass of Chardonnay here. Chardonnay? That's the go-to? Right now. Yeah. When I was in college, I, it was beer, but you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, we evolve. We evolve. Lots of beer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you, do you have a favorite curse word? Are you a cursor? Uh, yeah. No, Yeah. Yeah. Uh, shit would be mine. Yeah, shit would be yours. Yeah, that is, uh, that's the number two. That's number two on the is list. Is it? Yeah. The F word wins. That's, so it's that's good shit. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, do you have any favorite guilty pleasures now in retirement? In addition to drinking Chardonnay, you mean? Yes. Yeah, in addition. Or with Chardonnay, potentially. Doing nothing. Doing nothing. I love it. I, yeah, you I, don't I, seem I, like the kind of guy that does nothing, Jim. I, I, yeah, that that um, I'm I'm I've been retired now since 2012, and I and I okay. was board board chair, board leadership, not for profit stuff. But I'm <clears throat> I'm now free of all that. Okay. Um, and I'm 
just becoming okay with sitting in a chair and reading a book. Mm. Good for I, you. I Good for you. That counts, that counts as a guilty pleasure. Okay, okay. Um, what was your first job, first paying job? Grave digger. No way. It was beautiful. Customers no never gave you any crap. <laughs> you know, when you were done, you were done. Yeah. Nobody Where's, said, could you dig it this way? Where did you, you grow up, Jim? Holyoke, Massachusetts. Holyoke, Massachusetts. Okay, cool. So, yeah. awesome. Um, no, that was it. Did you... I was going to ask you, did you know what you're going to be where you, when you grow up? But we know that story. That never a chance. Never a chance. That's no, so. not really. Cool. Any... It was, it was, I knew it was going to be something with people. Yeah. Because that was kind of my thing. Yeah. I did, I, it wasn't a thing. It was just like I, I, I'm not a single contributor. I'm, not a, I'm yeah. not a solitary. And there are plenty of excellent, and I've hired lots of them. Yeah. But that's not who I was. Mm. Um, other than that, no. And I found my way, or my way found me. I don't know. Maybe it's a little bit of both. Yeah, right. Amen. Any any uh, parting words that you were hoping to share that you didn't get to share with the audience? I think you're the kind of guy we might have to have back on to discuss other worldly topics, honestly. But well, I, you know, I mean, I, I guess we we've talked about it. I would just say, um, you know, the world's in a unique place right now. Yes. Um, but it also presents unique opportunities. Mm. Uh, and there's no better time uh, to kind of solve a problem or to get in there and create an opportunity than when the world's kind of upside down mm. uh, and take advantage of that. And, uh, you know, go go do that with every confidence in your ability to figure that out. Yeah. Um, don't let anybody tell you, you know, nobody. Um, can make you feel bad about yourself without your permission. You know, I mean, you got, don't let so, anybody tell you you can't do something. So true. So Jim, that is that is an excellent way to end the podcast, my man. I I I really appreciate you coming on and carving out some time. It was a good conversation. Time. Thank you yeah. for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you so much, and uh, we'll talk soon, my friend. Good luck to you and all of you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye.